Did you like the new song? Yes. You like that? That's awesome. That's good, huh? Really good. Some of you know who Joshua Harris is. I, I think I've mentioned him a couple of times in the pulpit uh, over this last year. Uh, he was one of the darlings of Reformed evangelicalism. He was mentored by two big-name pastors, C.J. Mahaney and Louis Giglio. He pastored a megachurch for 10 years. He was a sought-after speaker at big-time Christian conferences. He wrote 10 books. One was a bestseller. He sold a, a million two copies of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Some of you may have read that book. It's a big deal back in the tens. He was a key leader in the sexual purity movement back in the tens. I read one of his books, actually. It was entitled Stop Dating the Church. I liked it. I recommended it to others. It was a strong exhortation for every professed Christian to sell out to their local church. In 2019, he left his wife and announced that he, would no longer, he was no longer a Christian. We'll come back to him in just a minute. In the last few weeks, we've seen five guys give their lives away to Jesus. Jesus simply said, follow me, and they did it. Just like most of you, they gave their lives away to the Lord Jesus. We've also seen last week a very eager, earnest, and enthusiastic prospect receive that very same invitation, but he was grieved. He was a big shot. He was a rich guy down at the synagogue. He was a leader down there. But he lacked one thing. He lacked one thing. You remember what Jesus told him he lacked? He had an idol. He loved his money. He loved his security. He loved his prestige and his position more than he could ever love God. Of course, Jesus could see his heart. And he read it. He was willing to use Jesus but not give his, way, his life away to him. So we've seen that when God issues that beautiful invitation to follow him, some say yes, some say no. Some go with him, some walk away from him. But there's a third kind of response, isn't there, that we're very familiar with in the 21st century. God says, follow me, and there is that yes that really means no. I know all about this. I've been guilty of this. I was guilty of this for 20 years until I was genuinely converted. It's the title of the sermon, When the Yes is No. Some of you may have experienced this. Some of you may be experiencing it now. You said yes, but it's really no. It really is no. On a daily basis, it's no. You know, it could be that calculating yes. You know, it's like Judas, right? Judas thought he could get something out of Jesus. It was all self-serving. I've seen many of these kind of calculating yeses. It could be an emotional yes. I just want to feel better about myself. Maybe Jesus can help me out. It could be a psychological yes. Yes, I need some mental solace at this time. I need some peace of mind. Maybe Jesus can help me out. With that, it, you know, we talked about this last week. Maybe it could be a utilitarian kind of yes. I just want Jesus to give me more stuff. Give me a blessing. I need a blessing. 
I need health, wealth, and prosperity. Give me that, Jesus. That's what I want. It could be a conformity, yes. I just want to fit in. All my friends and family are, are Christians, so I guess I should be one too. That's what it might be. Of course, there's always that self-delusional yes. I actually really believe I'm a Christian, but I'm not. I don't love him supremely. I, 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 I really, on a daily basis, I'm not overly concerned about my obedience and my repentance and my humility and my ministry. Not really. It's not that high on my list. In fact, on most days, I don't even think of these things. So there are many kinds of yeses that are really no's. We know that in the spiritual realm, it is rife with deception. False Christs, false gospels, false churches, false teachers, false doctrine. Spiritual deception is the rule and not the exception in our day and age. I couldn't help but think of the screw tape letters. Some of you have read it. If you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. C.S. Lewis's satirical Christian novel. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but it fits so perfectly I have to bring it up again. The book is, is comprised of letters of advice written by the senior demon and mentor, who is, whose name is Screwtape, to his nephew, an apprentice demon, whose name is Wormwood. Now, Wormwood has been assigned to a human being to keep this human being from coming to the enemy. Now, you know who the enemy is, right? Try to keep this patient, they're called in the book, or this human being from God. God is the enemy, as far as the demons are concerned. Immediately, there's bad news in chapter 2. Screw tape, or Wormwood, um, his human has made a profession of faith. Listen to how Screwtape, the senior demon, offers this counsel to Wormwood, the junior demon. He writes, I know, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a professing Christian. There is no need to despair, however. Many of these converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, and they are now with us. So, what is Screwtape talking about here? What is this, quote, converts that have been reclaimed, unquote? Well, they're, they're one of the assorted yeses that I just mentioned to you a few moments ago. Some of the yeses that are really, they, they never were real. They were really a no. You know, I don't mind conforming to the culture and to whatever's religiously, you know, popular. But give my life away? No. No. I want a Savior, but I'm not interested in the Lord. You know, we talked about that a day or two, uh, a week or two ago. I'm interested in having someone be my Savior, but am I going to walk with Him and obey Him and, and, and worship Him with, with all my being? No. No. Not going to go there. It's the cultural Christian, the nominal Christian, the pseudo-Christian. Men and women who have said yes, but their lives shout no. The yes has never been woven into the life. Again, listen to Screwtape's counsel to Wormwood, chapter 9. And this is a brilliant insight. It's a brilliant insight by C.S. Lewis. Screwtape says, talk to your professing Christian about moderation. Moderation in all things. 
If you can get him to the point of thinking that Christianity is all very well and good, up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated kind of Christianity is as good for us as none at all, and it's way more amusing. Now, this is a demon speaking, right? <laughs> they love it. They love pseudo-Christianity. It's a big joke to them. They've got you right where they want you if you're playing some kind of religious game with Jesus Christ. They love pseudo-Christianity. Sadly, much of what passes for Christianity today, it's biblically unrecognizable. It's just biblically unrecognizable. It ventures nothing, it foregoes nothing, it risks nothing, and it sacrifices nothing. It's good for amusement to the demons, but that's all it's good for. It's not good for anything else. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Matthew 13. We're going to plow through Matthew 13, at least part of it, this morning. Matthew 13 is just a tremendous chapter. It contains a number of parables describing the realities of true conversion. It helps us understand about the multitude of yeses that we see in the modern church that are really no's. What's really going on here, right? It helps us to understand this. Obviously, this was, Jesus was keenly aware of this, and he taught in uh, Matthew 13 about this. There's another parable in here, too, that I'm sure you've heard of. It's very famous, the wheat and the tares. The tares that are among the wheat. They were the ones who said yes, but their lives say no. Their lives have said no. So, verse 1, let me just summarize the first few verses. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus is sitting in a boat. There's a great multitude. It's gathered on the shore. Verse 3 begins to speak to them in parables. Jesus used parables to both communicate truth and what? What are we going to hear him say? He used parables to both communicate truth and what? Conceal truth. Now, if you're not a Bible reader, you're a little shocked. If you don't read your Bible, you're a little shocked. We'll talk, about, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Verse 4 through 8, Jesus recounts the parable of the sower or of the soils. By the way, this parable is included two other places, Mark 4 and Luke 8. Verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, the disciples ask him, Why are you teaching in parables? Here it comes. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. You know, all through my formative years as a Christian, I was always told, well, Jesus taught in parables to help people understand. But there's another side to this. And he tells us, doesn't he, right here in the text. He's, he's speaking in parables to conceal the truth. What is this about? It's about judgment. It's about God exercising his prerogative to judge those who aren't really interested. They're not really interested. Give us a Savior. You know, the, the first century Jew wanted that political, that political Savior, but we don't want a Lord... We're not interested in obedience. You know, we're, not, we want to, we're, we're little sovereigns. We're going to live the way we want. This is judgment. 
Back in Matthew 12, the religious leaders accused Jesus of delivering demons by the power of Satan. This is almost like a turning point for him, and he begins to speak in parables to the crowds at large. This is his divine prerogative. It's like Romans chapter 1, where the Holy Spirit says, God gave men over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is God simply giving men what they want. Oh, you want your sin? You can have it. There comes a point where it's over. You know, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was over for Pharaoh. It was done. It was a done deal. He was damned. He was sitting comfortably in his palace and he was damned. God hardened his heart. Romans 1.26, he gave them over to degrading passions. You know, that first, that first uh, verse I gave you, 124, God gave them over to, to the lust of their, of their hearts to impurity, the sexual revolution. Secondly, degrading passions, the homosexual revolution. Romans 128, he gave them over to the depraved mind. And, and that's what we see in the culture, isn't it? An intellectual and rational collapse. Isn't that what you see? Do you watch the news? Brad, stop watching it. I'm, I'm thinking about doing the same. Do you watch the news? It's an intellectual and rational moral collapse. It's a country under the clear judgment of God. It's happening right now. It's happening. And it will get worse. It will get worse. Listen to how strongly the Holy Spirit states this truth in John 12, 37 to 40, which underscores and amplifies what Jesus is saying here in our text, Matthew 13. Listen to, listen to the words out of the Gospel of John, John 12. But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, all these opportunities to believe, right? Yet they, they were not believing in Him. This was to feel, fulfill the word of, word of Isaiah, the prophet, which, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe it was over. They had been given over to their loves of self and sin. It was over, right? You know, I think there's a whole lot of people attending church that don't realize that this is, a, this is how God operates. Right? There comes a point when it's over. You've rejected Him long enough, and you are now rejected. This is how God works. We just need to understand our Bibles God has blinded their eyes. I'm back in John 12. He has blinded their eyes and he's hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This is part of what's being said in Matthew 13. It's amazing what you learn when you read your Bible. Jesus is concealing truth from those he is letting go their own way. It's a pretty major thing to understand, I think. You know, the, the God of the Bible is presented in such weak fashion these days that men actually believe they can play him for a fool. Well, I, I'm going to sin all I want, but you know, I'll come to him later. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Maybe you can't. 
Maybe judgment has been, you know, issued in the courtroom of God. Maybe your heart has, will be hardened. Maybe it's over. Beloved, you know, this is the one thing that Brad and I talk a lot about. You know, we're in this dangerous God ministries thing. I mean, the church, the modern church does not tremble before Yahweh. They think he's a big guy and he's my best friend and he loves me so much, he would never judge me. Even though I've never, you know, truly come to him and expressed any deep love or appreciation to him or, or thanked him. Beloved, if you can sow anything out in the world with your friends and family, you sow the fear of God. You sow the fear of God. What is the beginning of wisdom? You tell me if you've read your Bible. What is it? The fear of the Lord. Men believe they can spurn Him, keep Him at arm's length, and then flee to Him when it seems convenient. Beloved, that's a dangerous game to play. There's urgency in the gospel. There's always urgency in the gospel. I love the way it's, it's said over there in Hebrews three times. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Today, there's urgency here. There's always urgency with the gospel. Verses 12 and 15 back in Matthew 13. Jesus talks pur purposefully uh, veiling the truth of the gospel as he exercises his prerogative to judge. Verse 13, while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes and your ears because they see and hear. For many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and hear what you hear, but they did not. And so I'm just going to ask you, when was the last time you counted your blessing? That you're on this side of the cross. It's history. You know about it. God was in a manger. God is on the cross, right? You have, you have the, the, the completed canon, canon of God's Word, right? It's right here in your lap. And you're probably in it every day, right? You're a, you're a lover of Christ. You're in it every day. Because this is His Word. It's, as I prayed earlier, this is, this is my meat. This is my milk. This is my drink. Beloved, we have all of these unbelievable, breathtaking realities. Shame on us if we're not giving ourselves to them, if we're taking them for granted, if we're not appropriating these spiritual blessings. What did he say? To those to whom much has been given, what? Tell me. Much will be required. Oh, you grew up in America? Historically, acknowledging the value of Christian ethic, you grew up in America, your parents took you to church. You've, you've maybe read some of your Bible, you, you may have read it all. And you're still only interested in, you know, a Savior, but not really a Lord? You can't handle Jesus like this. You never get to separate Lordship off of Him being our Savior. So, I think you all know this, but let's just say it. Let's just um, 
explain the, the primary elements here in the parable. The seed, of course, is the Word of God. It's anyone sharing the Word of God. Of course, Jesus is our prototype here. This is how Karen and I did ministry in Italy for 18 years. We just sow seed. I said it to you last week. We, we know we can't convert anybody. We just sow seed, and we let God do what God's going to do. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. One sows or plants, one waters. But God brings the increase. You know, 1 Peter 1, uh, 23 says it perfectly. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. You say, well, Jim, you know, I'm not really interested in the Bible then I have to say to you, you're not interested in God. It's His Word. How can you not be interested? How can you not want to know what your Father, your Creator, your Savior, your Redeemer has said to you? How is that possible? How is that possible? Secondly, we know the soils are an illustration of the human heart. And its response to the Gospels. So it seems good. The way I'm going to handle this text is I'll read the pertinent verses in the parable. Then I'll go down and read the, uh, the interpretation that Jesus gives to his guys. And I want you to notice there are three of these hearts have exactly the same characteristic. The fourth one is different. And I want you to notice what the... What they have in common, the first three, and what the fourth heart has separately. Verse 3 and 4. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Jesus explains this down in verse 19. You might want to drop down with me, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of, of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The Old Testament has a, has a colorful term for these kinds of folks. They're stiff-necked. Stiff-necked folks, right? Hard-hearted. Not really interested in what my Creator has to say. I have my own agenda. I have my own agenda. They're the consummate fool. They're not interested in ultimate questions. Oh, they can tell you a lot about living this life, but they don't know anything about the next. Where's wisdom here, beloved? Where's wisdom here? Knowing your Creator? And knowing what He says about how to be reconciled to Him and, 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 and what eternity is going to be like? Where's wisdom here? Where is wisdom? Over in the Luke account, Jesus talks about this, this seed as being trampled underfoot. I thought it was a revealing metaphor. A heart so trampled down with self-absorption, self vanity, ego, and pride, and preoccupation with fleshly priorities, they have literally zero concern for the things of God. And i got to be honest, I went to church for 28 years. I had zero concern in the things of God. I just went because, you know, my family raised me like that and it was a habit. 
I'm sure if God hadn't converted me, I would have fallen out sooner or later. That's how it was for me. You know how Paul talks about it, Romans 8, 6, 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death. So you can do inventory. Is your mind set on God, loving God, enjoying God, walking with God, or is your mind set on the flesh? Who you are, who you can be, what you're going to do, what's fun for you. Can I say, we always say it, right? <laughs> God is more fun than all the enjoyment of the world combined once you're into relationship with Him. Because the mind, back in Romans 8, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let's move to the second soil. Verses 5 and 6. Others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Jesus explains this down in verses 20 and 21. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Wow, a true convert. Oh, Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately what? Immediately he falls away. He falls away. This is the superficial, shallow heart. He's a, likely a church goer, might be a church member, might be a deacon, might be an elder. He might be a mega pastor. But he's never really said yes. Never really said yes with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he falls away because of, because of, because of the truth. Is that what it said? Because of the affliction and persecution that comes, comes with the truth. Oh, you don't want to get canceled. Too bad. If you're a Christian, you will get canceled in this life and in this world. You're going to get canceled. If you actually speak truth in the world, you're going to get canceled. So just get ready for it. Embrace it. Love it. Right? Love it. I'm supposed to get canceled here. I don't belong here. I'm passing through. I'm a pilgrim. Of course I've been canceled. This is no shock <laughs> that... I've been canceled. So there's this bedrock under this, this good-looking soil, right? And, and the roots can't go down. So it's just all superficial, right? And when the sun comes out, when the heat comes out, the, 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 the plant folds and, and the so-called Christian just folds under the pressure, right? He just folds under the pressure. This was a yes that was really always a no. What, what was the word Jesus used here? Temporary. He's temporary. He hung out around the church for a while. But you know, that particular church, it wasn't all about me. I like it when it's about me. I want health, wealth, and prosperity. That's really what I want. So I'll go find a church that preaches that junk. I don't want to sit under the Word of God. I don't want to be convicted of my sin. <laughs> I don't want to get canceled. I don't want to lose my job. 
What did Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? I'll take care of the rest of it. Your average professing Christian doesn't actually believe that, I don't think. So this is an epidemic in the modern church, right? This is an epidemic. You know, if someone shows the slightest interest, and I think we talked about this last week, if someone shows the slightest interest in being a Christian, man, if we can get him to pray that prayer, we got him in. I get to notch my belt. You know what? I've never led anybody in that prayer, and I will never lead anyone in that prayer. And if you want to know why, you can come talk to me. But you know what? I've heard many a man say to many a man say to me, "Well, I prayed the prayer, and I told you last week that's all they got. They don't have anything to say after that. I prayed the prayer and I was baptized. They have they don't have one thing to say after that. They've never moved on with Christ. It's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment." My good friend Jim Elliff wrote an article called An Unregenerate Denomination. He was talking about the Southern Baptist denomination. And these numbers are rough. I learned these numbers in seminary. They may have changed some. I think they've gotten worse. But about a third of the members on the rolls never show up. Never show up. Okay? There's a handful more that show up when it's convenient. Right? And about 20%, only about 20% or less show up for any other kind of thing, like a Bible study or a prayer meeting or some ministry work. Elif is right. The SBC is an unregenerate denomination, by and large. It's universally true. Brad and I have had the misfortune of having to study through some of that. But the affliction comes because of the truth. You know, this goes back to Joshua Harris. He couldn't take the heat. He was getting canceled. We'll come back to him in a minute. This kind of soil, this kind of heart came to Jesus on superficial grounds. They are not willing to pay the price. We know that that it's not true for the, the true believer, right? We know that we are overcomers. We're Nike, right? How do we overcome? By faith. 1 John 5, 4. And I could give you quotes up here till I fell over, but 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This is how the true believer functions. This is his worldview. He doesn't care about getting canceled. Paul wasn't concerned about getting canceled. For these are momentary light afflictions which are producing for me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is how the true believer thinks. Cancel me, do your worst. This is how the true believer thinks. If the yes is really a yes, <laughs> we look right through the hard stuff to the new heaven and new earth. Amen? We look right through it. We look right through it. We're passing through. We'll be home soon. Third, third soil, verse 7. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Let me read verse 22, where Jesus helps us out on that. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke 
the word and it becomes unfruitful. How many people have I known like this? Right? I don't have time for the word of God. I've got to worry about my job. I've got to worry about my finances. I've got to worry about my portfolio. I don't have time for the word of God. I don't have time for it. I'm too busy. I'm too important. I don't have time for it. And let's just be honest. I'm not really interested in what he's got to say. Can we just be honest? If we don't pick up our Bibles, you, you, you don't say those words, right? You, you don't say those words. But your life is shouting it to God. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you say. So this is the worldly heart. Maybe a churchgoer, maybe a church member, maybe a deacon, maybe an elder, maybe a mega pastor. But he's not a disciple. Disciples don't act like this. Disciples don't worry. We have a real relationship with the living God. We trust His sovereignty. We have confidence in His promises. Right? You know, Jesus tells us to not be anxious. It's, it's probably the most pervasive sin in the church. And we're all guilty of it, right? If we don't learn how to preach to ourselves, if we don't know how to be in the Word, we're all guilty of this. Worry will rise up in our hearts. It just will. You have to fight it. You have to preach to yourself. You know, we preached uh, Psalm 121 a couple of weeks ago. We have to always remember that God's our helper. He's our keeper. He's our protector. And He's our guard. Again, do your worst. Cancel me if you want. I don't care. I'm standing right here on the truth of God's Word. The second weed here is the deceitfulness of riches. I've seen this many, many times, you know. It's just, I'm so interested in my portfolio and how much I can make and, you know, yeah, that's really what I'm interested in. God, not so much. Maybe on Sunday, maybe I'll go. If there's not a game on, I'll go. You know, if I don't have something better to do, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go down there to the church. Sure, why not? I look good when I do it. I feel a little better about myself. I can call myself a Christian. So what do these first three soils have in common? Anybody? Anybody? No fruit. Okay? No fruit. There's no fruit. That's how the fourth soil is different. Verse 8. Verse 8. And the others fell on good soil, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. I heard MacArthur preach on this this week, and I think that, that he was saying like a fifteenfold or twelvefold uh, crop was like a huge deal, right? In the first century, it's like a huge deal. Jesus says, Oh, I'm talking about what I'm talking about here is if you're walking with me and you're sowing the good seed, what I'm talking about is a hundredfold and sixtyfold and thirtyfold. We got fruit here, right? So you can, you can do inventory right now. What is the spiritual fruit in your life? This is the born-again heart. It's soft, unlike the hard-packed soil. It's deep, unlike the shallow soil. It's clean, unlike the weedy soil. 
It's the regenerate heart. It's the heart that loves God and consequently loves His Word. And He's in that Word. And He's sitting under that Word. And he, man, He likes it when the preacher, you know, goes right at it. And I have to tell you, I preach the way I preach because I love it when I'm sitting under a guy and he convicts me. Man, I want to be convicted. I know I need to be convicted. I want to be changed. I don't want to leave the same way I came. I don't want that. As I told you before, I don't really like myself so much sometimes. You know, the closer you get to God, the more you see your sin, right? We're always dealing with it. We're always dealing with it. So what is this spiritual fruit? Well, it's a whole lot of things. It's whatever looks like Jesus. Now, that's, that's a cop-out. That's an easy thing to say. Whatever looks like Jesus. I'll give you some, I'll give you some tips here. I would say it's a very uh, deep and, and real love for Christ. I mean, it's just like, I, I've told you this before, and I, I'm not bragging here, but I, I, when I wake up in the morning, I've told him 15 times I love him before I get out of bed. And I don't know why that happens. I, I, I don't consciously do it. It's like it just wells up, you know. I don't, I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just saying I, I do love him. It's like that Peter thing. Do you love me? Well, you know I love you. He knows if you love him or if you love something more. He knows it. You know, it's a hatred of sin in your life and it's proactive repentance, right? It's a love of God's word. It's spiritual humility. It's a hunger for righteousness. It's, it's the presence of the fruit of the spirit in your life. It's heartfelt worship. I'm not just, you know, parroting words in here. I'm not just singing along because it's a nice tune. Man, I'm praising God. It's obedience to God. It's living by faith in God. It's using your gifts to love and serve the body. It's honoring Him in your finances. It's, it's, it's living the gospel before people and communicating the gospel to them. It's 10,000 ways you incarnate your Christianity to the glory of God. Right? It's those 10,000 things in your life. Many of them unconscious. <laughs> They're unconscious. It's just a righteous habit now. It's a righteous habit. And people's like, my seminary professor said, and I always loved it, you know, he said, he said, man, he said, man, I, I can smell God on that guy. When was the last time you think anyone said that about you? I don't know. But, you know, isn't that a, wouldn't that be a worthy endeavor? Man, I want to smell like God out there. <laughs> you know, I want to. People are supposed to ask us, what is this hope that's within you? People are supposed to ask us this question. When was the last time you got asked that question? Are you projecting that hope? Are you projecting the glory of Christ? Are you projecting submission to Christ? Are you, are you projecting lordship to Christ? This is big, big stuff, Bubba. Big stuff. One thing I was thinking about as I prepared the sermon was, interestingly enough, the, what Jesus is talking about here, the essential nature of fruit bearing, this aspect, it was one of the last things Jesus said to his guys, okay? So we're in the upper room the night before he's crucified. And in effect, he says, this is what a real yes looks like. Okay? I'm going to turn over to John Chapter 15, you can go with me if you like, John 15. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here, John 15. This is the night before the cross. He's got his 11 guys with him. Judas has been dismissed. And Jesus says, I am the vine, 
and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what? He takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Isn't that great? <laughs> we're, we're bearing fruit and then God says, oh, I'm going to prune him up some more. And he'll bear more fruit. Praise God, right? Don't you love the pruning? Do you want the pruning? Are you praying for pruning? <laughs> Come on, bring on the pruning. Man, I, I want this. I want this. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Here it comes. He says this word seven times. So I want you to go home. You do a word study on the word abide. He's going to say this seven times in just a handful of verses. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Verse 8, by this the Father is my Father glorified, that you what? How is he glorified? Did you church, uh, attend church when it's not too inconvenient? Does that glorify God? I don't think so. What glorifies God is that your life is bearing fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. You're sowing that good seed. You're sowing it. You're always sowing it. You never stop sowing it. My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So, look, look what he says. So, verse 8, John 12. Prove to be my disciples. To abide means to live, to reside, to remain. There are many other synonyms. You can go do a word study for yourself. The true Christian, when it gets hot, we don't bail. We're not overly concerned with the things of the world. We have a sovereign God. And we do not fall into the deceitfulness of Riches. So Jesus, he broadcasts this invitation to follow him to any and all. Some men say yes. They really do follow Christ. They, as we said several weeks ago, they give their lives away to him. Sometimes men say no and they walk away. They walk away from the offer of eternal life and they're headed into eternal death. Sometimes men say yes. And they seem to follow for a while, but ultimately they walk away. The yes was really a no. It was never truly in the heart and soul and mind, and it never was really being worked out in any genuine way in the life. So I'm back to, I'm back to Joshua Harris, former big-time mega-pastor. He writes, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. Listen, I know too many who have deconstructed their faith. I'm an old man. You may not know very many. I know too many. A pastor I grew up under, he walked off. It happens every day. People walk off. I'm continuing with Harris. 
The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am no longer one. Now, beloved, I'm preaching kind of strong to you today because I don't want any of you to ever write anything like this. I don't want you to feel it in your heart. I don't want you to think it in your mind. And I don't want, certainly don't want you to write it. I don't want your faith to deconstruct. I want you to persevere. I want you to be in the Word. I want you to abide. And if you're not proactively abide, then you can go home and repent of your sin and tell God that from, from this day forward, I'm going to drive a stake in the ground. I will proactive, proactively abide. And if you don't know what that looks like, We'll ask him first. If you need some clarification, we'll be happy to help you. So sometimes the yes really, really, really looks like a yes, but it's a no. It's a no. I will not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Joshua Harris liked that one thing that the rich young ruler lacked last week that we talked about. The one thing that was everything, what? He did not preeminently love Jesus. He loved his money. He had an idol in his heart. He had a higher affection. You know, when people ask me, what is one of the, the great hallmarks of true conversion? I, to me, the easiest thing to say, it, you know, and it, it mirrors the, the, the greatest commandment, it will be in your affections. And this is an easy thing for us to, to consider, right? Is it in my affections? Okay, I go to church, I got baptized, I said the prayer, blah, 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 blah. I teach, I do this, I'm, I'm a great, I'm a, just a wonderful person. But the ultimate question is, is he in your affections? Is he in your affections? It's the foremost commandment, Jesus said, must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That's when you know the yes is really a yes. And so I, I'm just going to lovingly challenge you. Some of you may need to examine yourself as the Apostle Paul tells the, the Corinthians. Some of you may need to examine yourself. It was my yes really a yes? Am I living out the yes? Or has it all been kind of a sham like Pastor Jim was a sham? For 20 years I was a sham. 28 years. Well, okay. Well, I made a profession of faith at 8, and I was saved at 28. So that's 20 years. I was a complete sham. Say, Jim, sounds like you got some baggage. I got a lot of baggage, okay? And I don't want you to walk through the same thing that I've walked through. I always loved Piper's, the beginning of Piper's seminal work, you know, the Desiring God. He, 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 he comments or he quotes the, the, the famous catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay? The born-again soul understands that. That's what praise God means when you see it in the psalm. Praise God. It, it, it's an invitation to come and enjoy God. Enjoy me. Enjoy me. And the born-again soul's in on that. They're in on the enjoyment. You can't touch their enjoyment. I'm enjoying Yahweh. Piper changes that catechism. He changes one of the prepositions. I love it. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Amen? Have you started? Have you started to enjoy God? I pray that you have. Let's pray together.